You're listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church, recorded at one of our worship services. I'm going to read scripture for us. If you open up your Bibles, Philippians 4, verses 2 to 29. Let me read this. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious by anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, Whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is uh, commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. These are the true words of the living God. Thanks be to God. Good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me? Great. Okay. Good afternoon again. And it's really great to see all of you um, here this morning. Today I'm going to preach from Philippians chapter 4, as Jeff has so kindly read for us. And the title of my message is Non-Anxious Living in an Anxious World. But before we dive in, can I just ask all of us to bow quickly and say a quick prayer. Father, we want to thank you. We want to thank you indeed, Lord, for who you are. And as we've been spending the morning singing and worshipping you, just being reminded of the great God that you are and the sacrifice that Christ has made on our behalf. Lord, we want to ask that this will indeed bring us a deep peace, Lord, in a place in a world that is so anxious today. So, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I just wanted to start off this afternoon with a, a quick story. Um, I don't know how many of you all still play card games in this day and age. Uh, our family does. So over New Year, Angeline was playing, so Angeline, my wife, was playing with Beth this game called Stress. I don't know if you all know this game. Okay, from, from, from your looks, it seems like you all don't know. Okay, so this game is really a card game. You put down cards, and you try to put it in order, numerical order, right? So one, two, three, four, five. And then when both players, this is head on head, right, two people, and once both players put the same card down, let's say it's a one and a one, then the fastest person to put your hand on the deck and say, stress, will then um, will win, right? And the loser will have to take the deck of cards. So the loser will, will be the one who ends up with the most cards in their hands. Now, what happened was that when we were playing, Angeline made this statement, ah, this is so stressful. It's super funny, but it was... It was really interesting. Yeah, yeah. See, she's laughing. But, but, but what I thought was funny was that this is a very accurate depiction of stress and anxiety in our lives. Right? As you play these games, it actually starts off with this low-key anxiety. You're like, okay, you know, put the cards down. And then it starts increasing as it gets to a point where, oh, the numbers are going to become, uh, are coming together. 
And when the hands come out and like people like, ah, stress, you know, it's explosion of emotions and like, ah, that pressure that comes through. But the question is for us today, this morning, is this how we feel about life? Is this what we are thinking about life? Having to face up with low-key stress that demands all energy and attention while we fight to remain in control and often to no avail. Now, digitalization has contributed to this rise of anxiety in our lives. You know, arguments that previously could take place only in person can now take place miles apart. You know, it can be one, one end of the world, the other end of the world, and people could be arguing, right? Much less, what about social media? Everyone is free to put in their comments on whatever you post, right? So we're free to impose and force our comments, our opinions onto others. And what does that bring? That brings anxiety, that brings stress, and yeah, just makes living in this world a much more anxious place. Now, furthermore, there are increasing expectations to be always on in our workplaces, right? You look at your phone, oh, I have to do this, I have to finish this now. We have to churn out things all the time. And this deluge of information that's coming at us without real context often, right, that we are supposed to take and integrate and synthesize all at one place. Now, instead of giving us more control, I think what is happening is that it's causing us to feel out of control and increasingly anxious. Now, I remember for myself a couple of years ago in my previous job, so emphasize, right, it's my previous job, um, where we were supposed to churn out some spreadsheets, right? So this were compensation data of people, really, really highly sensitive information, that 13,000 rows and I don't know how many columns, so do the math. And each of them had some formulas in them that were very, very complex. And we had to just fill those things in and make sure it was given accurately. Let's hand, hand that in in a very, very short timeline. And I think the, the deadline was actually on Chinese New Year. Right, during which we had to go for reunion dinner and all that. So we had to finish everything before that. And I remember going to bed and being awakened, having a nightmare that I was amending formulas of Excel in my dream. You know how terrible that is? And I had to go through that. I woke up feeling so relieved that it was a dream, but my heart was still pumping. It was real. It was a visceral reaction for me um, in that time. Right, so that is, I mean, really, it's, it's not just us, right? Certainly not just me that's feeling this, but I know that in a recent study in the US, it's been revealed that 42% of Gen Zers have been diagnosed with mental health conditions. So that's 42%. And guess what? Out of this group, 9 out of 10 struggle with anxiety. And 57% are taking medication for their conditions. Now, this is in the US, but I don't think we are very far behind. So the question is, for all of us in this room today, are we struggling with anxiety? Are there things that are digging into your heart? You know, are there things that are taking up your emotion and your mind today? The passage today tells us not to be anxious about anything, but how is that even possible? The passage today is, is really from the final chapter of Philippians. In some ways, it's a final speech before the end of the epistle. It weaves in many different themes that we've covered in the last couple of weeks. We've talked about joy in Christian living. We've talked about unity in Christ, living out the Christian life, imitating others, seeking the interests of others, and Christ being the ultimate gain. But this has been expressed in this passage 
you know, different, a number of different exhortations. So we see in verse 2, in this passage, to agree in the Lord. In verse 4, to rejoice in the Lord. Always. Verse 5, be gentle, be reasonable. Verse 6, to not be anxious about anything. And in verse 8 and 9, to think about what is excellent and what is praiseworthy. It is set, as we know, in the middle of a disagreement within the church, where Paul was actually addressing how only the peace of God can deal with the anxieties of this world. So my sermon today has three points, simple points. The first of which is, how do we respond to anxiety? Second, how can we experience non-anxious living? And the third, how does God's peace enable non-anxious living? So let me dive into the first point. How do we respond to anxiety? If we look at verse 2 to 3, as, we've, as Jeff has read for us earlier, there's these two ladies, right? The passage opens with a scene of relational brokenness. Now, for all of us, I'm sure, at some level, we've experienced some relational brokenness. And for those of us who've experienced it, we know how much anxiety this can cause us. We know how much pain and heartbreak it can bring for us as well. Now, these were two women, Euodia and Sintache, according to Jeff. Um, yeah, I was trying to figure out how, how to read the name, but, but Jeff has solved that mystery for me um, in a New Zealand accent as, as well. Yeah, so Sintache. <laughs> yeah, the two women whom we can assume to be known as leaders, right? Now, these two women were proven workers in the ministry, as was said, right? They co-labored side by side with Paul in the gospel. Now, what does in the gospel mean? We can safely assume that perhaps they were understanding, exhibiting an understanding of the gospel, perhaps even explaining, teaching, discipling people in the gospel together with Paul, right? And just to be emphatic, Paul relates to them together with those whose names are in the book of life. And what does this mean? Probably means that they are in the faith, they are Christians, that's what we know today. But let's dig in a little bit more here. Now, Paul was entreating. Well, another word for entreating is begging, right? So he's begging these two women, and he wasn't just telling or cajoling them or like trying to bribe them with, with candy, right? Say, oh, like, please do this. No, it wasn't. He was begging them, please. The strength or force of this sentence was much stronger. It was like there might be some real consequences that might happen had they not agreed, right? Or they continued not agreeing that Paul was perhaps alluding to. And perhaps the gospel work might be compromised. Maybe there was some building anxiety in the church because of the conflict already. But yet, the force by which Paul was calling them to agree also seemed to show that these two women were very, very strong right, in their position. They were taking a strong control of the position that they were in. Now, so if we look at this passage, I think we can agree that Paul is alluding that there's some agreement between Euodia and Sintiche that was causing a level of anxiety within themselves, perhaps, within the leadership, and within the church. Now, as, I, as we look across this section, there are some thoughts of anxiety that I, I really want to highlight um, to us as we go through this. Now, three points are really, firstly, that all of us are susceptible to anxiety. We see here both Christians and non-Christians, right? For the non-Christians among us, I, I want us to, to know that Christians go through anxiety as well. Right? We are not exempt from it. Neither do we have a secret recipe to not just 
yeah, anxiety disappears from our life. But we face anxieties, all of us. Right? Secondly, the anxiety can be defined as an overt emotional response to a situation we have really no control over. Right? Often these situations are an expression of sin and the broken world that we're living in. But in this case, the disagreement was also exposing a lack of unity and perhaps some hard conditions that they were having that were being exposed at that point. Now, to manage our emotional response of worry, stress, or fear, anxiety often drives us towards a desire for resolution. We want to resolve it. But how do we do it? And very often, it drives us towards one of two outcomes. Either we, we try to be in control, we, we take control of the situation, or if not, we, we just completely try to escape the situation. Now, there was a season in my life when I had severe migraines, and every now and then, my mind would start to go wild. I'll be like, I, can, I guess you can ask Angelin how, how I did this, right? I was like, oh, you know, I'm probably having some sickness, yeah, some issue, some cancer, or something in my head, right? And I would get, and I'll get anxious and frustrated, and, and guess what I did? I went to the most trusted source. I went to WebMD. No, of course not. Yeah, I did go to WebMD. It's not the most trusted source, but I went to Google all sorts of resources, just trying to find all sorts of answers to why I was having these headaches or these migraines, what it could possibly mean as well. I, I wanted to check every possible outcome. And guess what that led to? Do you think that led to more peace? No, oh, absolutely right. It didn't. It ended up with just greater anxiety. I felt I had even more diseases after that. Um, or in my previous workplaces, when my boss, again, right, it's previous workplaces, okay? Um, when my boss scheduled a meeting for the next week without having a clear agenda, like, oh, okay, Caleb, can I meet you next week for this? And I'm like, what were my first thoughts? Oh, man, what's, what's going on? Why are you asking me in? And what did I do? The first things I would do is go and check with my teammates. Hey, you know, did boss call you in for a meeting as well? Are you scheduled for one-on-one? -on -one? <laughs> Guess what? And the person says no, right? And, and then, who gets anxious as well? The person that I ask. So I multiplied the anxiety, like, oh no, why are you having one-on-one? Uh, -on -one? I'm not. Oh. So think about that. Despite my best efforts, I ended up as anxious, if not more anxious than before. And I multiplied that anxiety right, to those around me. Now, is this real in our lives? Are we feeling that constant low-key anxiety there? The reality is that we are mere mortals facing forces that are way bigger than us, right? And we are unable, completely unable to control over things of life and death that are in our lives. But what is our response? How do we respond to this? We desire to wrestle control. We desire to wrestle control from a God who has everything in control. And the question is why? why? Why do we desire to be in control? Really because in our sinful hearts, we don't believe God is able to deliver. And what do we think? We think we are better. We think that we can be our own gods. We don't trust Him to experience peace in Him, but we believe when we are in control, we can find peace. So what do we do? And so we press on, right? We press on with our own strength 
and our own efforts to extricate ourselves from situations of anxiety. And often in the end, we realize what we've only done at best is to replace one set of anxiety with another. So the question today is, how then do we truly experience non-anxious living? So if we look at verses 6 to 7, so that's my second point, how can we experience non-anxious living? The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Now in verse 6, there's this gentle exhortation for people who might be facing anxieties. People of Philippians were probably going through, we know, disunity in the church. There were also other things like suffering, oppression, all sorts of things, um, oppositions that they were having, that they were dealing with. Now, in fact, the word for anxious here is the same word that was used in Philippians 2.20 when Paul was telling the Philippian church that he wanted to send Timothy to them because he knew that Timothy would be concerned or that same word, anxious, for them. Now, in this sense, we also know that then, therefore, anxieties can even be, in some ways, warranted, right? It's a genuine good thing in that sense. So at first glance, one would consider it odd. Is the solution for anxiety to just not be anxious? It seems like that's the solution, right? To tell someone, don't be anxious about anything. That's what the Bible is saying. So, but if they're clearly anxious, what good would that do? Right? Is it even possible to remove all anxieties from our lives? Now, I don't think Paul was asking the Philippians to move away to a mountaintop somewhere or to go to the beach, right? hang out singing Bob Marley's, don't worry, be happy. Okay, okay. different generation. Yeah. So, so what does that mean? What does he mean here? Right? What does Paul mean here? There was this article that I was reading that really described it well. Now, while the Bible calls us to not be anxious, it is communicating the necessity of stopping an action that is already going on. Right? The force of the original Greek word is that we must stop perpetually worrying. We just have to stop what is already there. Now, in this way, there's a recognition that in this life, we will never be anxiety-free, right? But the command here is that we don't dwell on or ruminate or just keep keeping on on the anxieties and let them play over and over again in our minds. We don't do that. We stop, right? But how? How do we stop? Now, this is... I'm just going to run through an, a quick illustration, right? Perhaps if our child comes to us and says, Hey, Daddy or Mommy, I'm, I'm anxious about my test. Okay, my children are sitting here, so I have to be careful what I say. Um, we, we might say something like, oh, next time prepare harder, lah, you know? Whole day watch TV, whole day do this, right? Yeah. See, in class, never pay attention, right? Uh, see, that's why I'm anxious. Yesterday I asked you to study, you didn't study. Okay, so that's them, right? And that's what we would say. Or perhaps if our junior at work is anxious about presentation, what would, what would we say to them? We'll tell them, bro, there's still time. Don't sit there and do nothing. Don't be anxious. Right? Go and do something about it. Prepare harder. Go and make sure that you have all the data ready. And that's what we'll do. Right? But our God is different. Our God doesn't do that. And in this promise, as Paul puts it to them, the second portion of verse 6 points us to how we need to respond to stop being anxious. 
The command is not to repent of something or stop doing this or that, or, or we need to do more, we need to like, pile on our efforts. Right? In fact, it's just the opposite of that. We are invited, we are pointed to God that through prayer, we are able to find that peace. Now, hence, the promise of the Lord being at hand is so key. It turns our hearts and our minds back to God's presence. Now, the presence of the Lord is near. That in itself is a reminder of the assurance that we have in God's proximity, both now in the present as well as even more so in the future. Now, Paul in the earlier chapter talks about our citizenship in heaven. And if you can any points to the day of Christ, the reality of Christ's return, the completion of the good work that he's begun in us through Jesus Christ. And that gives us an ultimate hope and a trust that the one who has fully already won the victory against sin and death and who will be coming to take us home, to return for us, that is the God. That is the God that we can turn to our anxieties. So what do we do? We go to God in grateful prayer. How do we stop worrying incessantly? In the verse there, it's quite clear. By prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Verse 6 reminds us to let our requests be made known to God. Now what does this show of God? This shows that this is a God who is willing to meet us where we are, who is willing to see us as we are. He's willing to see our cracks, our faults, our difficulties. He doesn't just want to see this perfect person, this perfect creation that, is, that we think we should be in front of him. God also desires to help us. He demonstrates the fact that he's a God who cares about how we can live well and breaks into our present world to do it. And he gives us the space to do that through praying to him. Now, we are simply called to first turn to God, to recognize Him as the giver and the provider, and to acknowledge how He has already been good to us in saving us, and to be thankful for that, and to let our requests then be known, made known to Him. Now, there's a sense that we need to be intentional about letting Christ in. We need to, um, and, and to do that in allowing our requests to be made known to Him, that we are transferring our control, the control that we hold, to God. Now, let, let, me, let me invite us to think about it this way, right? Now, imagine if you have a standing one-on-one -on -one with, with your boss in another country, right? And you're reporting the status of your work to this boss. And you face some real issues that came up at work. And then there's these anxieties, there's these stresses that come up. And you feel that it's expectation for you to fix this problem. Now think about what you would do before that call. What would you do? I'm sure if maybe you're all very good workers, but I've, I've certainly faced that, right? So, so we'll start to gather the data. we we'll start to say, oh, okay, what have I done wrong? What have I not done wrong? Maybe I script out what I want to say. Make sure that my boss is hearing the things that he wants to hear, and I don't say the things that he doesn't want to hear, or he or she doesn't want to hear. I'll be scrambling to do all these, and when the call comes, I'll be having a nice script to say, oh, okay, um, yeah, this is what happened, this is exactly what I did, this is what I should do, etc., etc." And it's a very scripted, very controlled kind of call. Right? Conversely, conversely, 
if you were then calling someone in your family or someone, a best friend who had an interest in your heart, right, and how you're feeling, and someone who had the resources to help you, how would you do that call differently? I'm sure you'll be there opening up your heart, pouring out your sorrows, right, telling the person, oh, this is how I feel, this is the problem that I'm going through. I need help in these areas. Can you please help me? Now think about it. Think about God. Think about what He desires for us, how we should then go to Him. Are we specific when it comes to making our requests known? And if we are not, what could be the reason? Are we conscious of how not in control we are? Are we afraid of perhaps living a bad impression on God? Letting Him see how weak we are and how unworthy we are. Like how we would speak to a boss. Now the good news is that God already knows how weak and how unworthy we are. And in spite of that, He still loves us and He invites us to come in to Him. And so what happens when we give up control to God in and through prayer? The passage today tells us that we will experience the peace of God. And we will receive from God a peace that God's. So what does peace look like for us? Very often our idea of peace is the absence of trouble, the absence of any kind of worry, discomfort. Like we said earlier, right? Go to the beach, go to the mountaintop. But is this the peace that God is desiring for us? The word peace here is the same word used for shalom in the Old Testament, which points to a state of health, a state of well-being that God purposes and God desires for us, for His purpose. Now Paul goes on to describe the peace that we can receive in Christ. First, it's a peace that surpasses all understanding. Now in today's speak, that would sound something like a peace that is mind-boggling, right? Or a peace that causes me to be mind-blown, like, whoa, this peace. Now what is promised in this state of well-being it is that it surpasses all understanding, which is ironic because we often seek understanding to combat confusion, to want to be in control of our anxieties. We want to understand everything. But the reality is only God's peace can do that. Now, the force of peace that is described here is also seen as one that is guarding our hearts and minds. The word guard is the same word. It's a military word. It's a protective word. It's one that allows our hearts and our minds to feel protected and safe. And in there, there is then liberty. There's freedom for our hearts and our minds to then be transformed in Christ when we are in that safety, when we are in that peace. Now, I read this in, in a book called uh, Work, Faith at Work by Brian Chappell. But this is just an account of a Korean-American pastor who was actually jailed for sharing the gospel in, in a country where this was not supposed to happen. So there was a Korean-American pastor who was caught and was jailed for sharing Christ. And all, while he was being jailed, he struggled to maintain his integrity and his faith while being tortured, while being ridiculed, while being laughed at, all these things, right? And being incarcerated, of course, in jail for that period. And it was a long time. It was horrific conditions. But he remembered one evening the prayer that he prayed. He said this, Lord, you know my heart, you know what I want, but not my will, but yours be done. You know I want to go home, and if you want me to stay, I will stay. 
I give up my right to go home. I surrender it to you. Please take care of my wife and my children and my parents. Please take care of them while you keep me here. If this is where you want me to be, okay, I embrace this as your will. Now then he wrote this, that peace came over him as a weight lifted off his shoulders. Now did he suddenly get out of jail? Did he get transported somewhere else? Did the problems that he was in disappear? No, the peace of God came in. And he went on to say that God reorientated his heart to see his purpose in the prison as a missionary. And that changed his prayer from one of God save me to one of God use me, use me in this place. And he managed to speak to the prison guards and, and in fact allowed, allowed, that allowed him to tell them who Christ, who Jesus was. Now we have a God who guarantees our peace. Right now, doesn't this story remind us of a certain someone, of someone who, was, who knew his hour was coming, who faced anxiety from knowledge that he knew something was, that was inevitable was coming at him, someone who was more perfect and whose sacrifice is more complete. Now, Jesus was praying, Jesus was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane when he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And his response was what? It was to go to the Father in prayer. It was to go to the Father in prayer, asking if the cup could be passed from him. But ultimately, Jesus acknowledged and accepted God's will. Jesus fully entrusted himself into God's control, entrusting the outcome and the will of God, as we see in Philippians 2 previously. And he did so to become our peace by his atoning sacrifice which paid the price for our sins and killed the hostility between God and us, reconciling us to God in one body through the cross. As you can see in Ephesians 2, I should be up there. So this Jesus that we have, because he entrusted himself and his control to God, has bought our peace with God the Father, erasing the debt of sin on our behalf. But more so in his resurrection, Christ was exalted so that his name, every knee would bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. And in that exaltation, we are able to have a deep, deep assurance of that perfect peace that awaits us when Christ returns, that perfect shalom that we will have in him. So therefore, Christ gave up control so that we can have peace with God. And in his resurrection, we are reminded the Lord is at hand and that reality propels us because there's an even more perfect shalom that we can experience than here, than we can ever do here on earth. So my final point today is how does God's peace enable us to live? Now, we see in um, verses 8 to 9, and the point is we, it considers, allows us to consider our culture in the light of the gospel. Let me read 8 to 9 quickly. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think of these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Now, verse 8 to 9 speaks of Paul challenging the Philippians to consider their culture in the light of the gospel, even as they experience the peace of God. 
Now, if we read it on the surface, it seems like there's a bunch of things, there's a bunch of values or virtues that we're supposed to think about. Right? And these qualities were commonly examined in the Greco-Roman moral um, discourse. But yeah, at the same time, it was part of, main part of their culture. But Paul concludes this verse by asking us to think about these things. Right? It's not just do these things, but think about them. Another way of translating the word think is really to consider or to reason. Right? It's a very, very active kind of thinking to deliberate, to discern the culture of the day through the lens of the gospel. Verse 9 continues, asking them to practice the things that he has, that they have learned, received, heard, and seen in himself. Now, we've seen consistently through different epistles that Paul has written that, that this really points to the gospel. And Paul is really doing these things. Like, that's what he's pointing people to, and he's modeling for them. So what does this mean for us? How do we respond in the cultural conversations of our age? In the peace that we've given, do we place ultimate importance on the virtues of today? Like diligence, resilience, or even being in a marriage relationship as the top thing, or embracing diversity in our society today? Do we pursue these things because they are what the society thinks is excellent or praiseworthy? Or are we able to consider these things in the light of Jesus Christ, the one who is most excellent, most praiseworthy, and live in the light of the Lord being at hand? Now, in fact, if we revisit some of the earlier verses, we see this described and articulated. What does it mean to live in Christ? Right? This is further seen in verse 2, for example. The word to agree in can be translated as to set one's mind on. Paul was calling these two women to live with their minds set on Christ, set on the Lord, calling them to a sense of unity and love. And the beauty of this is furthermore shown on how the community is called to, to come alongside to help in this, to help to disciple, to walk alongside these ladies, to, set, to help to set their minds on Christ. And what does it mean to set our hearts on Christ? Philippians 2.5 makes it clear, right? To have the mind of Christ is to walk in humility and obedience with the, God's, with the Father's will. But to do so knowing that it's the gospel that gives us the strength and the peace to do this. Now, Valentine's Day has just passed. And Angelina, my wife, bought me a, a lovely table plant. It's really nice. When I brought the plant to the office... Um, I was trying to figure out where to put it on the table, right? So, um, yeah, the plant became the focal point. I had other plants that were, like, dying. So, so I, I threw them out, I, I got rid of them, and then I was, like, neatening the table, making sure that the plant looked nice uh, in place of the monitor and, and other things, right? So, finally, I did all of that. And when people came by, they were saying, wow, your table is so neat. Okay. Simon was the one who came by. <laughs> and said, wow, your table is so neat. And then when I explained to him, like, yeah, you know, I did it because I got this plant from Angeline. And, and he says, like, wow, all that for a plant. Yes. And so that was great, right? And, and, but, but my point is this, right? When we set our minds on Christ, he becomes the focus. And we start to organize our lives around what he thinks what he desires, what he wants. Why? Because we love him. 
because we are enabled by His shalom to do this. And we see this in play in the following verses. And the next verse that we're looking at is really one of the simplest verses in the Bible to memorize, as my kids would tell me. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Rejoicing in the Lord is very, very different from just rejoicing, right? Things that we do, you know, after exams, after we finish a big deal, yeah, we, we go out, have, I don't know, go for drinks, go for karaoke. It's rejoicing as well, right? But no, this is different. We are asked to rejoice in the Lord. We want to find joy in the Lord, in the work of Christ that has been done for us and that will be completing in us. And this is encompassed in the shalom that we're given through Christ and is pointing toward the Lord again being at hand. Now, interestingly, one of the outward manifestations of us being in the Lord is the call to have our reasonableness or gentleness being known to all. Now, this word is fascinating. It's used six times only in the Bible, but if you look at all of them, right, in 2 Corinthians 10, 1, it says, I entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. It used to describe Christ. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, not violent, but gentle. So it refers to elders. Right, remind our elders and pastors, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle. So Christians in general. Right? But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason. So the wisdom from above is also described with this word, gentleness. Now, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So used to describe masters at the time as well. Now, it's fascinating, I found that, that this word gentleness is used in these circumstances. So this gentleness is not just one of being soft or easily pushed around. It's a quality that is described for various Christians at various stages of maturity and leadership. Now, even Christ and the wisdom that is from above was described as being gentle. Now, this gentleness and reasonableness is a response of our hearts. As we've experienced both a peace of God and recognize that we're deeply loved and deeply secure in Him, that's the only way. And that response is one of gentleness, one, one that points to our restedness and assuredness in Christ's peace. So church, what does this mean for us today? For those of us who have not put our faith in Christ, what does this mean? Now if you're facing anxieties today, does it mean that your life will change once you become a Christian and we all become Zen and sit there and like, ah, oh, nothing bothers us anymore? Not at all. But we see today that setting our minds on Christ, knowing that Christ has bought our peace and He has the promise of a greater peace ahead of us, directs us to both understand more of our lives and our purposes in Christ leading us to understand our anxiety and being able to then give this anxiety to the one who actually can handle it, right? Not WebMD or anything else, but give this anxiety to the one who actually can handle it. So if there's any among us who are struggling with anxiety, but feeling that the Spirit is speaking to your heart, asking for you to turn to God, we would love to pray with you, we would love to speak to you. Please come to the front later so that you can the leaders can speak with you and we can just pray and, and, and talk to you. Now for the Christians among us, I would like to suggest two responses this morning for us to consider. Now the first is to turn to God in prayer. Now what have we really heard? How does this apply to us? That this anxiety, 
There's a call to remind us that we cannot choose our anxieties, but we certainly can choose the responses to our anxieties. And one of the practical responses for us then to cultivate is this area of prayer. We're called and invited to come to God in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving and let our requests be made known to God. So, first thing I would like to, the three things are up there, pray regularly, pray specifically, and pray openly. Pray regularly. One of the practical ways we can do this is really to just set aside, be disciplined and intentional, set aside time to pray. Now, why, why do I say this? Because this allows time to be guarded for prayer, cultivating this safety and proximity for prayer so that we, when we feel anxious and uncertain, we don't feel like I'm only going to Christ for this, right, and nothing else. But really, we want to cultivate this relationship and this nearness to God that gives us safety to go to Him. Earlier, Jeff, I think, also prayed that we are um, that we, we want to cast our anxieties on God because He cares for us in 1 Peter 5, 7. This, is, this will also help us to be truly grateful and thankful in our prayers. Second point, to pray specifically, practically, when we are intentional to be specific about what our needs are. There's a sense of humility and willingness to be vulnerable and inviting God into the process of working together with Him on our anxieties, giving Him ultimate control. And finally, to pray openly to not be afraid, to let our hearts be known to God. This exercise, I think, is important because our anxieties do often expose certain sins or inadequacies. And being able to articulate them before God allows, him to, allows us to invite God in, allows us to know that we need Him and we want Him to work in our hearts. And finally, to turn our minds to Christ, really to understand what is the motivation for this non-anxious living that we want. Is it driven by a sense of self-preservation or is it something that we want to point to Christ with? So how do we tell? Now this peace of God liberates us and allows us and transforms us, allows us to be transformed to set our minds on Christ. So the first point is to consider our culture in Christ. With God's peace, we are called to live in our cultural context in light of Christ and the gospel living out a life of rejoicing, of agreeing in the Lord, and of being reasonable in Him. And finally, to consider our community in Christ. We have a responsibility to walk with those in our community towards non-anxious living. And that can mean being intentional with discipleship, or even praying together, but ultimately pointing each other to be setting our minds on Christ. Now, as we think through this, the summary statement is this, right? Those who practice dependence on God in prayer are promised God's peace. And with the promised peace, we can live with a mindset shaped by the gospel in society. We can live out the gospel in practice. And the presence of God, who is peace, will be in our midst. And this is indeed the picture of a true shalom. And therefore, as we come to face to face with anxiety, for those of us who are facing anxieties today, I want us to remember that we can respond in grateful, dependent prayer, allowing God to be in control, assessing this peace that He has, and letting this peace guard our hearts in Him and guard our minds in Christ Jesus. And to end, right, in a very, very beautiful way, strange and beautiful way, anxiety and the right response to it through Christ can indeed point us to God to drive us to the arms of Christ and to ultimately experience a truer and better shalom in Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We pray that You'll fill our minds and our hearts, Lord, with a true peace that comes from You. 
that you will allow us to live lives that are not anxious because of this peace that we can have in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon podcast from Redemption Hill Church. You can find more of our sermons online at www.rhc.org.sg.